The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a new quarterly podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. On the next episode of our specials on the Salisbury poisoning, I am joined by author and journalist Ian Ballantyne. We discuss how our submarine forces have been a deterrent to hostile Russian military activity and how defence cuts have now made us weaker in the eyes of the Kremlin. Just before we begin, I just want to give a little shout out to some of the top listening cities in the last week. So I just want to say hello to listeners in London, New York, Los Angeles, Memphis, Stockholm, Zurich, Toronto, Berlin, Liverpool and Portland. Thank you very much for tuning in. I very much appreciate that and I hope you enjoy the work that we're doing. Don't forget you can connect with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. We also have a Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com forward slash DryCleanerCast. Without further ado, this is Need to Know, and thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, welcome to Need to Know. Hello. Just for listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm, I'm a, a magazine editor. I edit uh, a magazine called Warships International Fleet Review, which is a global naval news magazine and I write naval history books ranging from uh, submarine warfare through to uh, World War Two and uh, events that have happened in the Gulf in the past as well. I've had written various books as well so that's what I do. Excellent. Now um, I just want to ask you first of all what are your thoughts on the Salisbury poisoning? It's an interesting milestone in Russia's relations with the West and I think you can put it up there with uh, the annexation of Crimea and also um, events such as uh, the alleged transgressions into the waters of NATO and allied nations that may or may not have been the fault of uh, Russian submarines and uh, the bombardment of Syria by cruise missile firing warships. It's something that you could see as a milestone uh, in the new reset in terms of the Kremlin's approach to the West. But of course, we don't know, nobody knows 100% that it was Russia. There's no fingerprints, there's no smoking gun, whatever you want to call it. So we have to be slightly careful about it. But it does seem pretty obvious that with uh, a nerve agent like that, um, then it has to be something that originated somewhere in Russia, whether it was something that was on the orders of the Kremlin or something that happened due to a a rogue group um, or some other organisation, we won't won't know probably ever. Mm. And so, so you don't feel it's far-fetched to believe that the Russian state could be behind this poisoning? It's not far-fetched, and it, and it feeds into the um, the narrative of um, the Russians using what you might call hybrid warfare or um, what they call the Gerasimov Doctrine uh, to undermine the West and to attack the West by means that are other than 
open warfare or standard military uh, approaches to waging war. And information warfare is a, is a detailed and in-depth part of what the Russians are up to. And I think the big question is, why are they doing it uh, at all? And also, what is their end game? I think that's the most interesting thing, if, if it did turn out to have originated somewhere at the behest of the Russian state. Yeah. Well, um, we brought you on today to have a quick chat about sort of submarines and the Navy. Um, you wrote a really interesting article uh, uh, titled Submarines are the Answer to the Kremlin's Transgressions, which uh, you wrote sort of in response to the poisoning. And in that article, you pointed out that uh, Britain does maintain a reputation for excellent excellence in undersea warfare, but there remains a severe lack of submarines, a shortage of people and a lack of funding that sort of undermines all that. Can you just talk us through why our submarine force is important? The submarine force is important because of its ability to do all sorts of jobs, whether it's intelligence uh, gathering and also offensive warfare, firing cruise missiles or attacking uh, ships. And also because it carries the nuclear deterrent as well. And those are different submarines within the Royal Navy. You've got the current Vanguard class, that are the Trident missile submarines, and you have the uh, Trafalgar class and the Stuke class, the new attack submarines that carry torpedoes and cruise missiles and do non-strategic jobs but are part of that whole submarine force and have a, a role to play there in protecting the Trident submarines from potential trailing and detection by Russian submarines, which does go on and is an active thing. It's not something that's gone away since the end of the Cold War. And they are complicated, expensive beasts because Britain's submarines today are nuclear-powered. And since 2003 or four, uh, the attack submarines, which are very useful, have fallen in number from 11 down to three or four available at any one time. And I think sometimes... It's a case of there aren't any submarines available, and sometimes it's a case of there aren't any submariners available. So you have an out-of-balance submarine force that is trying to put boats to sea, and they never go to sea without being absolutely sure the submarine is safe and having enough of the right qualified people to keep them out there. And so I think there are big challenges and big problems at the moment in the British submarine force in trying to bring in the new astute class and keep that program going looking out for and maintaining the Trafalgar-class submarines, the three of those left um, which are still in service, and also keeping the, tr- the Trident nuclear deterrent force going or planning to renew that force as well with Dreadnought-class uh, ballistic missile submarines. So it's a very complex area. Yeah, and just a quick to give you listeners a bit of a picture of how this works. So am I right in believing that even though we have... Um, so was it three three Trafalgar submarines and and so then the thing is with those submarines they're not all at the at sea at the same time they're kind of in rotation because there's usually one away for maintenance is there and then maybe another two or three that might be active um, yeah can you just talk us through that sort of process yeah with any with any naval vessel you'll always have let's say one out on patrol uh, another one preparing to go on patrol with the crew getting leave and training and and getting ready. Uh, to take a boat out or or a surface warship out, and then you have another one in maintenance or in deep refit. So for the 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 bombers, 
as the uh, as the Trident missile submarines are called, there's always one out of the four that's going to be in refit, or there has been uh, in in recent years, because obviously there's a lot of wear and tear goes on. So they would be sent down to Devonport to uh, in in the southwest of England to to be refitted, and that'll take some years to do. And then you'll have one probably maintenance up at HM Naval Base Clyde in Scotland, and then one preparing to go out and patrol and another actually out on the deterrent patrol. So when people look at uh, either submarines or surface warships, or any Navy, they have to compute that actually you've got to divide those vessels by three or even four to, to get a realistic number of what's available to go anywhere and do any mission. Mm. And can you just tell us about why the because um, the astute class is a new a new type of submarine? Can you just tell us why it's useful in deterring sort of hostile Russian naval activity or any hostile naval activity? Yes, by anybody, you know, yes. um, that's what they're there for. Uh, submarines are incredibly flexible, they're incredibly powerful, and uh, they have a psychological effect as well as a warfare effect. And the Russians know this very well, and so do the Chinese. In fact, so do all the submarine operating nations. So they have multiple roles, not only in uh, gathering intelligence and waging war, but also in terms of deterrence. And deterrence is, is presence. So if you can get a nuclear-powered submarine, which by definition does not need to surface, can leave uh, wherever it is, whether it's in America, Russia, or the UK, or France, and disappear under the waves for weeks, if not months at a time, you have a very fast, very powerful uh, offensive weapon. If you're talking about a Stuart class or Trafalgar class or Los Angeles class, if they're American or, or whatever a nuclear pad submarine it might be, an attack submarine that can lurk under the waves. It could be anywhere because it goes very fast and can be sent to the other side of the world without anybody knowing that you sent the submarine, but thinking there might be a submarine there. And therefore that will affect the mentality and the psychology of anybody that might take some sort of aggressive action towards you. And that was seen in, in the Falklands, in the in the 70s in the Falklands, when uh, Dreadnought, the first British attack submarine, was deployed to the South Atlantic. And although nobody would say for sure, the Argentinians decided they wouldn't invade the Falklands uh, in the late 70s because there might be a nuclear-powered submarine there. And then in, in the early 80s, they took a chance on British power declining in the South Atlantic. And the nuclear submarines arrived in the South Atlantic after the invasion. But from that point on, the nuclear-powered submarine basically neutralized uh, the Argentinian uh, strike carrier force. So that, uh, submarines have been shown throughout warfare in the past century or so, and in the Cold War and the Falklands War, and today, to have this amazing ability to exert a psychological effect just by being out there. Yeah. And so what's been going on with the Royal Navy? Because we hear a lot about sort of cuts and things. What was the sort of situation with that? The Stuart class submarine program has been gone a very long time. And whereas in America, you might see a new Virginia class attack submarine. Uh, one of them turned out every 18 months. In the UK, there just seems to be uh, a slowdown in, in turning out submarines. And they seem to take a long time to come out of at the Devonshire Dock Hall in Barrow, and then to go up to Faz Lane, HM Naval Base Clyde, as it's known, and then get into service. And one of the problems has been that the money 
has not been flowing through as it should. There was, a, was also, as a decade or so ago, a problem with keeping the skills base at Barrow to build submarines. And then, of course, the submarine force itself has been cut back, so then people are cut back. You don't have as many experienced people there either. And so there's been this kind of whole mishmash of challenges. And the astute submarines are joining the flotilla based up at HN Naval Base Clyde, but then they haven't been very fast in replacing the, the Trafalgar class. And then the, the latest news or the news or the rumour, should we say, that came out uh, a month or so ago was that the seventh astute class submarine uh, would not actually be built. So that would cut Britain's force levels once all the astutes are in service down to six. So you can see from that thing we talked about previously, the calculation of how many are available, you would have one or two uh, or three. Uh, and then there was another big problem that uh, was highlighted by a, a watchdog, a parliamentary watchdog, which was that while some astute class submarines were in build, they were removing new equipment from those submarines and actually sending it to the astute, three astute class submarines already in commission so it could replace equipment in the ones in service. So you've got kind of robbing Peter in the construction shed to keep Paul at sea. So it's a kind of whole um, merry-go-round of problems that needs to be sorted out. Yeah, it's pretty mad. Now, over the over the years, we've heard stories in the press about sort of Russian aircraft and the Russian naval forces sort of testing both our defences and that of our NATO allies. Can you just talk to us a little bit about Russia's use of submarines, especially against Britain? Yeah, the, the Russians have since um, the uh, late 1940s seen submarines, like many nations before them, as a means to to equalize their weakness in surface ships by building a massive submarine force. And they, they did that very early after the Second World War, so that by the early 60s, they, they had this massive submarine force, mainly diesel submarines, conventional submarines, and that, that outweighed anything the West could field. And so when nuclear submarines came along, the Russians got into that game second behind the Americans and strove throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s to maintain numbers, which they, they had a lot of submarines, but also trying to get quality in terms of, let's say, a cooler-class uh, attack submarines towards the end of the Cold War, and the Alpha, this amazing deep-diving, very fast attack submarine as well, and the Victor. These are all legendary names that have come out of Clancy and also real life, you know, at the end of the Cold War. So the Russians were, were racing with the Americans and, and the British as well, because we, we were smaller, but we were sending out uh, very high-quality submarines and very high-quality crews to, to meet them. So the Russians have always seen their submarine force, uh, certainly since the Second World War, as the primary uh, strike force, because, of course, they have their own nuclear missile submarines and also their tactical maritime force as well. It's the cutting edge, and that hasn't changed. And there was a lull uh, from, let's say, the early 90s to the mid-90s where you didn't really see Russian submarines at sea and the program slowed down, the, the new submarine program slowed down. But certainly since the loss of the Kursk in the early 2000s, what you've seen is uh, Vladimir Putin deciding that that wasn't good enough and that the, uh, the submarine force must be revived. So it has been revived uh, very much, and it's got conventional submarines, improved kilo-class submarines with cruise missiles. They're churning those out. They've got new attack submarines uh, called the Yasin, and then they've got the uh, also... Uh, ballistic missile submarines too. So that they're all coming out um, from the Russian yards. But at, at the same time, 
the uh, cooler submarines and the victors and others are still coming out and poking around the, the margins of territorial waters such as Britain's going into the Med um, and there have been rumours of incursions into uh, territorial waters in the Baltic. So the Kremlin, Russia, is certainly using the submarine force that it has to achieve that psychological effect and also to fire missiles into Syria, for example, all of which is um, I cover in my new book, The, the Deadly Trade, which has just come out, if you'll permit me to mention that. So. Yeah, no, it's a great book. In fact, yeah. um, I was having a quick peruse of it today, and in there you mentioned in 2015 a Russian submarine tried to um, trail a Royal Navy submarine off the coast of Scotland, and it got so yeah. bad that we, the Royal Navy, had to call in help from America, Canada, and France because we seem to have run out of anti-submarine aircraft. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a result of um, a gap, basically, in UK defences was a result of the, quite frankly, disastrous uh, 2010 Strategic Defence and Security Review, which ignored the Russian threat, really, and was uh, conducted as if we were still in the 1990s and um, got rid of maritime patrol aircraft without replacing them, put a 10-year gap in our maritime patrol aircraft force. In fact, we don't, we don't have one. We, we, after the Nimrod was, was um, cut and the new Nimrod was scrapped and cut up, we were left with no maritime patrol aircraft, which are a very important element of maintaining a watch of uh, seas and uh, trying to detect submarines and uh, keep them under pressure and also find out where they are. And at the same time, uh, the same review cut back on frigates, so you had less anti-submarine warfare frigates with uh, also helicopters declining in number, so less of them to fill in for the Nimrods. Then, of course, submarines declining because the Trafalgars are getting old, so they're going out of service. So that was a complete and utter error, and they cut the strength of the Royal Navy by 5,000 people, got rid of the Invincible class, which were great platforms for anti-submarine warfare helicopters. Uh, so there was a whole raft of errors made back in in 2010. So come 2015, the Russians, as they do as part of their, their current uh, full-spectrum warfare, are looking uh, to try and gain respect from the West and saying, you will respect us, you will fear us, because you've, you've treated us with contempt and said that we lost the Cold War, so we're going to show you that we haven't. So they've, they've been on that leading edge of a new uh, confrontation and have used their submarines to try and do what they tried to do in the Cold War, which was to trail the Vanguard class Trident submarines as they come out from HM Naval Base Clyde or go back in. Uh, and that, that is a, a goal of theirs, which they've pursued for, for years, which is to find a British or American uh, missile submarine, detect it, follow it, and basically destroy its ability to be the invisible deterrent. And then they probably would boast about it and say, we've caught you. Um, and, and aside from that, the Russians also sent a couple of Akula-class submarines down through the Irish Sea at very fast speed, which they were, they were detected. They were followed uh, by NATO surface warfare groups and NATO submarines, including a British one. But to send two Akula-class submarines to submerge down through the Irish Sea, which is fairly narrow sea room and with territorial waters intersecting, it was a definite, you know, up yours from the Kremlin to, to Britain. Because in the Cold War, they would never have been quite so brazen with that. They would come into the Clyde and poke around there if they could. But in general, Russian submarines have always gone out to the west of Ireland. Uh, although they have sent their submarines in recent times down through the Channel, but on the surface, that's the diesel submarines. And, that, you know, any submarine can go anywhere on the surface. It's when a submarine dives and 
shoots off to somewhere that it becomes a threat. And those are cooler class submarines. Are they? Um, do they have nuclear weapons on them? A lot of Russian weaponry is dual use. So you would have a cruise missile or some other anti-shipping missile that could have a, a tactical nuclear warhead put on it. So uh, that is a that is has been a feature of the Russian um, armament locker for a long time. So. Um, it's not new, but um, recently President Putin announced a whole raft of new wonder weapons, if you like, that are, are going to be even more capable, that will be dual use as well, and also, you know, potential nuclear strike weapons, including a massive torpedo that you could fire from one side of the Atlantic to hit, let's say, a, a, a naval base in America or wherever, and detonate and basically take out that naval base. So if, if they turn out to be workable, then it's a certain, um, you know, that certainly is a um, an upswing in, in the threat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are a number of commentators both online and in the media in reaction to the Salisbury poisoning have been accusing Theresa May and the West in general as the ones being aggressive towards Russia and trying to start a new Cold War. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think uh, Theresa May or the British government are being aggressive. They're, they're not being aggressive. I think the way they've responded is... Um, fairly measured and is probably the right way to do it. It's whether or not they are doing enough um, in terms of a balanced uh, response. That's the thing that I would worry about. Um, so I don't think they're being aggressive towards Russia. But in terms of a new Cold War, I think we haven't caught up yet with the mindset of, uh, of how uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia see the world and um, how they look at it. You've got to put yourself in Moscow or reorientate the map and then look outwards. And then you see how they see the world and you've got to try and understand uh, how they think. And I think that's the thing that the West is guilty of failing to, to do is to quite is to understand the psychology and to take it seriously. Um, and so in checking out all the diplomats and the uh, alleged spies and that, you know, that's a good response. And um, that's the way it should be. But in terms of a, a new Cold War, I think. The new Cold War, if you want to call it that, has been under, undergoing, um, sorry, underway for quite some time already. I mean, <laughs> there have already been fairly obvious uh, indicators of that. And in fact, you know, NATO admirals and others have warned of a, of a fourth Battle of the Atlantic already underway and warned of that, you know, five or six years ago. And that's definitely uh, what is happening. It's not going to be uh, like, uh, you know, the Cruel Sea or any other war you've seen before, but there certainly is a dimension to certainly Russia's outlook that, that sees uh, the Navy and particularly submarines as on the cutting edge and leading that new effort against the West because they feel that they were, I don't know, disrespected, they weren't treated properly in the aftermath of the Cold War. So they're, they're out to make the world realise that they have basically nuclear weapons and they are a superpower and that basically people should pay attention to them. That's their aim. But where that leads in the end, I don't know. So I think the so-called new Cold War has been underway for quite a while. Yeah. And do you think, Do you have you seen any indication um, with regards to the government taking this more seriously now, apart from the expulsions, but in terms of like defence spending, do you think there'll be now reviews on, on the... Um, on what's going on with the cuts to our forces? I don't, actually. I'd seen I'd see very few indicators of, of uh, people in the UK government, certainly in European governments, grasping the, the scale of effort, the vast scale of effort needed to deter anything that will turn into a hot war. And that's the thing. You can, you've got to deter 
the Russians with a very careful blend of um, restrained diplomacy, exactly what Theresa May has done, but also marking down at sea, which is a really good area to mark down where you will not permit the Russians to transgress, because it involves, let's say, sending submarines into the Barents Sea or the Norwegian Sea, and they could poke around in um, international waters and observe the new Russian weapons and show the Russians that you're not going to allow them to control the, Ar uh, the Arctic, yes, and also the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, and they can't have it all their own way. And then the Russians have to be diverted, as they were during the Cold War, into meeting that. And, and you don't have to declare war. You just send a submarine or... In the past, it was also carrier strike groups up there to do what's perfectly legal, to say we're in international waters, we're keeping an eye on you. And it's only what the Russians have been doing to us. But to, to maintain that effort, you can't do it with uh, a navy that's been hollowed out with too few people to send warships to sea, with a really sluggish construction uh, program and really small numbers of, of new frigates and not enough uh, attack submarines. You can't do it like that. You've got to sit down and treat what is uh, the so-called new Cold War seriously. And they're not treating it seriously. They go on about money all the time, uh, but what they need to do is look at how do we respond in terms of what is needed, uh, not for yesterday's threat, but for tomorrow's. And of course, it's a blend of, of all sorts of things, like attacking internet cables on the seabed, uh, just sending out submarines to you know, put up two fingers to you, or launching cruise missiles. So there's, it's a multi-level thing, and I don't think the UK government and Western governments in general um, are treating it seriously. Because I, I still think they're locked into this idea that the way to confront the Russians is to do it on land. It isn't, because the Russians see the sea as their main and most powerful gambit. And they see the West, certainly European NATO, as weak at sea, and the Americans as distracted with uh, having to handle the Chinese and North Korean uh, problem, as the Americans would see it, in, in Asia-Pacific, which is where the majority of American forces are. So in failing to actually treat it seriously, in failing to take real initiatives to boost force levels to really increase defense spending, they are basically giving the Kremlin a weakness to exploit. And what will it take to make the government take this more seriously and change their mind? I don't know. I think we'd, we'd have to go back to where we were in the Cold War in the 50s and maybe the early 60s, because I think that's where we are now, really. It's a completely different kind of uh, face-off, if you like. But we need to go back there and think, well, you know, we had a similar problem back then. So how do we get around this? What do we need to do? Um, and I think the problem is that the, the politicians that we have today come from a particular era where their mindset was, well, it's the peace dividend and long live the peace dividend. But they have to, to resign themselves to the fact that the peace dividend is over. And then we have uh, also, I suppose, a generation of military leaders that have been used to dealing with, with um, wars like Afghanistan and Iraq, and the Navy's been used to supporting the army and uh, providing sometimes a base for the Air Force. But actually, it's the Navy that now needs to come to the fore. And, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a, a naval historian or I write about naval things. It's quite obvious that that's what has to happen. So to, to, to think that you can, you can face down any threat from a continental power like Russia or China on land is false. You have to look at where they are um, exploiting weakness and vulnerability and making their bid for power and also natural resources, and that's at sea, and you have to meet it. 
So am I right in thinking the Arctic's going to become a, a new sort of theatre of uh, all sorts of activity? Well, it already is. I mean, the, Russian, the Russians are already in there. They're building new submarines that can uh, go down to the seabed uh, in the Arctic and plant flags and look for natural resources. They're, they're already up there. I mean, they're up there. The Northern Fleet, the Russian Northern Fleet, is uh, based in the Kola Peninsula and uses bases on the White Sea. I mean, they've, they've deployed more troops. They're building air bases. They've got their main striking fleet in the north. So they're determined that, um, that the Arctic, uh, the north, the high north will be their Mare Nostrum, as the Chinese are determined that, that the South China Sea will be theirs too. So, you know, these two um, growing, well, in terms of China, really growing uh, military and naval superpowers, and in terms of Russia uh, regenerating uh, Navy and military superpower. Uh, they, they're determined to mark out where they, they want natural resources to come from, which is under the sea, and also where they want to control um, oceans to place their submarines in. And that's a key thing for both of those countries, is where do you hide your nuclear missile submarines? And the Russians think it's under the polar ice, and the Chinese think it's going to be in uh, the South China Sea. So interesting times ahead then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dangerous times as well, yeah. Before we wrap up then, are there any other thoughts on this topic that we haven't covered that are important to you? I think in terms of, I mean, if you're talking about Russia, then I think the the thing we have to do is look at how the Russians will respond to any given uh, challenge to them and how they will, they will see it. Because if you look at the way the West developed uh, ballistic missile defence warships and placed them based in Spain to operate in, in European waters to protect... Uh, Europe and NATO, the, the concept behind those warships is to shoot down ballistic missiles from, let's say, North Korea. But of course, the Russians didn't see it like that. They saw it as an attempt to remove uh, mutually assured destruction and to, to remove a key element of their security. So that's why you now have Vladimir Putin, Putin um, saying that they will field hypersonic missiles and supersonic cruise missiles and these uh, amazing torpedoes that will hit American ports from, you know, the Arctic, because they're trying to outwit the American ballistic missile defense ships. So the thing that worries me greatly is we are now moving beyond that understanding between East and West that you mustn't ever use nuclear weapons, that you can't use them, and that the only way to stop humanity being wiped out is for them never to be launched into this sort of um, one-potato, two-potato game uh, where people think they can be used, and of course they can't. So I think we need to bear in mind we're not at war with Russia, and that the Russians are a player. We may not like how they do things, and some of the things they do are deeply dubious and are, are bad, and we must meet those things. But I think we also have to talk to them like we did during the Cold War and try and reach arms limitation agreements while also being strong and showing that we won't be messed around. Yeah. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? I have a website called uh, ianballantine.com, which lists all my, my books, etc., etc. And also I run a magazine called Warships, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, and that's on uh, warshipsifr.com as well. So, um, you know, that's worth looking at. And uh, there's various bits on there that I'm responsible for and you've got a new book out the uh, the deadly trade tell yeah. us a little bit about that it's a, a book that looks at the history of of submarine warfare from very early times from when archimedes leapt out of his bath and came up with the principle of buoyancy right down to today 
and what's happened with the the Russian Navy in the Mediterranean and and what could happen in the future. But there's a huge element of the book is about World War One and the first battle of the Atlantic between German U-boats and uh, the British and the Americans and the French. Uh, and also exploits in the Baltic and the Dardanelles. And then, of course, the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II, which was the, the big um, confrontation between Germany's U-boat force and, uh, and the British. So that, that's, that's the book. It's an epic, an epic tale, and I've tried to make it as action-packed and full of colourful characters and incidents as possible. But uh, it's, uh, it's out now, and uh, it took a bit of doing, but I'm glad it's out there. And it's big. I've got a copy right here, and it's, yeah, it's, it's huge. Yeah, it's the beast from the deep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I call it. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, look, I look yeah. forward to having you back on. Hopefully, in a few weeks, um, once I've digested this book, um, oh, yeah, and we yeah. have a proper chat about all these sort of naval battles and stuff because it sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's some incredible stuff in there, and things that you wouldn't think happened, and also, hopefully, it alters a few perceptions of of uh, what happened during the various wars. Yeah, brilliant, Ian. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.